Well, hey, everybody, and welcome back to Ghouls in the House, and this is our special Halloween 2020 triple feature. I'm Arnold T. Blumberg. And I'm Natalie Latofsky. And you came up with such a clever idea for how to pick three movies that I thought we got to do that. We got to figure it out. So what was your plan? Well, we were trying to come up with a theme or a type of movie or things related to Halloween itself. But ultimately, it sort of came back around to the fact that when we were doing our previous podcasts, Doctor of the Dead, we had already covered like literally the Halloween series. And we weren't sure that we really wanted to revisit that at least so soon after we'd done it previously. But that got me thinking about really one of my favorites and sort of the polarizing of the Halloween movies, which is Season of the Witch. And the fact that there are the three distinctive masks that are involved in the film. Three masks from Connell Cochran's Silver Shamrock, a pumpkin a witch, and a skull. And you came up with this brilliant idea of why don't we pick movies that are related to those three icons. Totally unrelated to Halloween 3. We're not talking about Halloween 3. We could. Not not that we couldn't, (laughs) but we did already at least once a little bit. So uh, we went through some ideas, and the first most obvious one, which we'd already watched, we now watched twice this season, was Trick or Treat which is a movie we've always wanted to talk about on the show and has very quickly become an annual tradition in the same way that any of the other Halloween, the Halloween movies have become. Yeah, for sure. And we probably would have talked about it on our previous podcast eventually because there are zombies in it. Yes. um, Which is kind of the beauty of an anthology film is you kind of get a little bit of everything. So, uh, So that was one of them. Trick or Treat from 2007 because... The character that runs through the entire film is the spirit of Halloween, Sam, after Samhain, spelled Samhain, but not pronounced that way. Please don't ever listen to Dr. Loomis when pronouncing Celtic words. And uh, Sam is basically a little pumpkin spirit. Give me cute. He's made of pumpkin guts. (laughs) So that's our pumpkin movie. And then for the witches, I had just ordered a ton of stuff from Scream Factory for their 50% off sale. Because most of our Blu-rays are Scream Factory at this point, I think. Yeah, pretty much. We like to surprise each other with what's going on in an evening. Like, the other person won't know what movie we're putting on. And I'd say at least, like, eight times out of ten, the film starts with the Scream Factory logo coming up on the screen. Ah! (laughs) It's like, okay, this will be good. And we had just ordered the special edition, the new release they did of The Craft from 1996. And the weird thing was it actually arrived... Didn't arrive yesterday. yesterday. It arrived the day of. We're gonna watch it. So because I have a DVD, and we we definitely would have watched my yeah. very old DVD. But it did look really good. Really good. It also just uh, threw into sharp relief Robin Tunney's hair. But we'll get to that. So the craft is our witch movie, and then I was trying to figure out a skull skeleton movie because we'd already done House on Haunted Hill, which I would think is our number one go to 
Skull or Skeleton film. I briefly thought of The Screaming Skull because you had bought the actual film on Blu-ray, even though we tend to watch the Mystery Science Theater. (laughs) But I realized this was an opportunity for me to introduce you to a movie that for a while, many years ago, was the kind of movie I would put on almost every single night and watch over and over, which is The Lost Skeleton of Cadavera from 2001, which is sort of an ode to 50 schlock sci-fi and a little bit beatnik movies too and some other things. So there's our uh, tribute to Silver Shamrock and our Halloween triple feature. One last thing I'll say is, unlike some of our other episodes, we've already done some episodes that had three movies in it. Mm-hmm. But we've tended to do more of a deep dive with a first film and then ease off a little bit with the later ones. For this triple feature, we're going to try to keep things a little tighter and just talk about why we like all three of these movies, what we found interesting about them, and do it as our special little Halloween episode. So we'll keep things rolling along. So uh, we're going to kick things off, though, with Trick or Treat. Absolutely. Believe it or not, I was just like you when I was a kid. Till my dad set me straight, that is. See, my dad taught me tonight is about respecting the dead. Because this is the one night that the dead and all sorts of other things roam free. (laughs) Pay us a visit. Sorry. All these traditions. Jack-o'-lanterns. Putting on costumes. Handing out treats. They were started to protect us, but nowadays... No one really cares. And basically, if I had been working for Silver Shamrock in the marketing department, which is sort of my my day job is communications and PR and that sort of thing. If I had been working there, this is the type of thing I would have put together for the Halloween night broadcast. It would have been a triple feature of movies that key in to the thematic masks to get all the kitties in front of the TV so that their heads would explode with spiders. Clearly. Why wouldn't you? Yeah. Uh, so trick or treat definitely would be something that would be on the list for me. I think Sam would be happy with Connell Cochran too. I think so. I think they'd be working together. I mean, he's very open to many different Halloween traditions and experiences. Yeah. He sits in on some. He just observes others. He gets proactive when he needs to. I guess we just step back and say that Trick or Treat was an anthology put together by Michael Doherty, who actually like cut his teeth as a screenwriter on uh, superhero movies, including some of the X-Men stuff, and did this. He had done a little animated short, I think, called Season's Greetings, introduced the same character, and then he thought, oh, do a anthology it was one of those movies that just was lightning in a bottle i think and then he went on to make a movie krampus that we've watched and maybe we'll talk about one day if we haven't already i can't remember it wasn't we quite talked as good. about it a little bit it wasn't yeah. our cup of tea and then he's gone on to do the uh godzilla king of monsters in the current growing monster island series of films and i think he's working in some capacity on the, the new godzilla versus king kong kind of thing they're doing trick-or-treat basically is an anthology But it's a beautifully constructed anthology. It's an anthology I would be so proud to have written because Sam is the running thing. He's this adorable little uh, burlap sack-headed thing that turns out to be basically the spirit of Halloween who is observing and maintaining the rules and the sanctity of Halloween. Certain things you must do, like don't snuff out the light of a jack-o'-lantern on Halloween night or you'll, you know, invite danger. While all the events of the various stories are happening... 
they are also interweaving throughout the same Halloween night in, what is it, Warren, Ohio. It's it's just a stunning construction because you're getting to see characters, Warren Valley, Ohio. You're getting to see characters from all these different stories crossing over with each other, interacting, and the movie begins at the end at what is almost chronologically the final thing that happens that evening, mm-hmm. and then we catch back up to it by the end of the movie, and it's just an it it also it rewards multiple viewings so much. I feel like every time we watch it, we see more in the background that interconnects where different characters are and sort of lays out more of the chronology of the order that things are actually happening, which is not exactly the order that you're viewing them. And it's just a symphony. I mean, it's just so beautifully woven together. And if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend you do see it before you listen to some of the rest of what we're going to say, because we may spoil some of the uh we'll say what's going on yeah the the plot reveals in it but i think one of the things that draws both of us back to it is that aside from you know like the killing and stuff we love killing (laughs) it seems like the kind of town we would love to spend halloween in because it's a town that basically just embraces it they even have a news crew that's there covering what is the annual celebration in Warren Valley that they always have this big sort of street party and parade and that the whole town really, really gets into Halloween. And that's just such an amazing thing. This, this fictional town of Warren Valley embraces Halloween in a way that every town should. And clearly Warren Valley doesn't have to suffer the likes of any like ultra religious or far right lunatics that are trying to deprive other people of joy. It reminds me so much of Salem some of the most fun I've ever had in my life were a couple trips I took to Salem and Marblehead, Massachusetts, and I'd love to get back to Salem one day when we can all feel comfortable with the idea of being out on a street with hundreds and hundreds of other people. It's going to be a bit. That'll be a while. But uh, they do capture a lot of that same feeling of just the entire town giving itself over to a festival, and it's beautifully done. I even mentioned while we are watching this time It's also quite an accomplishment for what is ultimately like a lower budget production to actually do that and yet manage to avoid showing any branded properties or other things they clearly didn't want to deal with or couldn't deal with. And yet it still looks convincing as an array of different costumes and styles. Well, and also it kind of keeps more with the spirit of the holiday sort of historically of like disguising yourself and, you know, tricking what would be the bad spirits. And it wasn't really envisioned that you would dress like Elsa from Frozen. <laughs> like, true. I'm not sure that that's really <laughs> tricking anyone or scaring anyone. I don't know, maybe it's scary to some people. I don't know. I think the A-plus has to go to the guy in the hot dog suit, though. <laughs> My favorites. It's a pretty good hot dog costume. Also, to one of the kids who are in one of the main storylines, she's dressed as an alien that has, like, the big alien head and, like, a cape around it. And she actually sees from outside the neck of the Mm. cape and will occasionally pull it back to talk and then close it so that it's, like, far above 
her head, which I think is a very cool costume as well. There are a lot of cool costumes in this. And uh, we start off, I mean, there are, there are a number of segments. They all interweave. So it's not like other anthologies, not like a creep show, say, which is wonderful in its own right. We really should actually watch that. There's no like host to it. There's no, well, Sam in a sense takes the role of the figure that in a traditional anthology would be the one like the creep show creep kind of character but there's no host segments per se mm-hmm. there's no introduction or you know well kitties wasn't that an interesting thing we don't ever get a beginning and end because all of this are the events of that evening and there are also some beautiful like lovely little connections like dylan baker's character who basically is the lead in his story also winds up being in one of the other stories and the same thing happens in several of them where they connect with one another. Mm-hmm. The full reveal of what happens to certain people that night only works when you see everything. Yes. And right at the beginning, we start with the couple, including um, someone who I, I... Oh, I never remember where she's from, but then I, I looked it up again. Leslie Bibb is the one of the women you'd, you'd hate to be around on Halloween. So so annoyed by everything. I don't know why she's even going along with it in the first place because she wants to clean everything up while people are still out trick-or-treating. She wants to shut down. Leslie Bibb is the one who plays the reporter with Tony Stark in Iron Man 1 and 2. Mm-hmm. The one that uh, Gwyneth Paltrow says about how taking out the trash is part of her job, and that's her. Yeah. Um, so she's the annoying character, but her boyfriend is clearly wearing an outfit intended to be like sort of a monochrome black and white ode to like Buster Crabs, Flash Gordon. Husband, I think. I Husband. think they show them wearing wedding Do they rings. show them actually married? Okay. Yeah, I think Just so. Just shows how you can watch it a million times and not really be sure what's going on. Their relationship doesn't seem like the best, though. I'm not really sure why they're together because like she's such a killjoy and he clearly loves halloween and loves like the festive spirit she did agree to put on like a homemade robot costume yeah. full of boxes and like and walk around uh, walk around in it and drink in it and have to figure out how to fit into a porta potty in it probably while they're out in the middle of town they appear to only truly be able to relate to one another with the assistance of a videotape which also says a lot about their relationship mm-hmm. uh, but it also is a lead off it's a short piece that actually is like the end of the evening and leads off into the credit sequence. Interesting, by the way, another thing. I mentioned Creepshow. This movie very clearly is at least partly inspired by Creepshow in the sense that Doherty brings some of a comic book feel to it and uses the comic book aesthetic for the title sequence in the ending. Mm-hmm. And they actually have done a graphic novel with some collected Sam stuff. And it's like, it isn't done quite in that way the creep show maintained throughout but they definitely have a bit of that feel in it that we're sort of in a comic book when we're in this i mean the whole film really is a love letter to all things horror all things halloween so what do we cover in this like in terms of the basics there's there's a werewolf story there's a vampire story and what else the 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 principal story with dylan baker is basically slasher killer kind of stuff Mm mm-hmm um, which is also, you could see it sort of, even though it's within a a more suburban-y town, you could see it as also an homage to the sort of hillbilly horror genre, like yeah. people hunters sure, and that kind of thing, like Wrong Turn or like The Hills Have Eyes, but more 
like disguised as a regular townsperson. Okay. And with Mr. Krieg, Brian Cox, another running uh, theme in Ghouls in the House, apparently. We will be covering all Aaron Kruger's films, and we will also apparently be covering all of Brian Cox's movies. Which we didn't even realize we were doing until we're like, hey, look, it's Brian Cox. Stay tuned for our Born series episode. (laughs) He turns up as Krieg, your standard evil old guy that hates Halloween, who turns out to have a dark secret that, again, links to one of the other stories. Which is a zombie story. Which is a zombie story. But his story specifically is also the Sam story, more or less. Actual battle with the spirit of Halloween, which feels very much like a remake of the first ever Tales from the Dark Side episode, if anyone remembers that, which also features like a demonic little creature um, going after somebody for trick-or-treating. And that very much feels like an homage. Yeah, in a sense, for most of the movie, Sam is kind of like an adorable little harbinger. Like he, when he shows up, you know, well, something's about to go down. Like something Halloweeny is about to happen here, because Sam's there, just looking cute, going trick or treat. He actually goes trick or treating with yeah. the kids, and is collecting candy in a bag that also seems to have a live cat in it as he drags <laughs> it down the stairs. And he'll show up, and you'll think, well, clearly he's like up to something or watching something or something's going on. And when you get to that storyline with Krieg, that's when it's like, aha, like he does, he does actively participate in this because it wasn't clear really up until that point mm-hmm. if he ever really participated. Well, I mean, I guess it is clear because in the very beginning. I'm not the- sure we quite see at the beginning that it's him. We see him notice her across the way snuffing out the jack-o'-lantern at the end right where we wrap back around and we know that that's and the thing is it's like that's the other thing one of the iconic things that has built up so much merchandise around it and as i sit here we have a string of lights based on them uh right now in our living room but the little lollipop he has the pumpkin lollipop that he takes a bite out of that turns it into a weapon we see where that lollipop winds up at the beginning of the movie yes because he puts it in her mouth and it's like and he even looks at it at the end it's like i guess i'll use this and he's gonna give that up (laughs) but yeah we see that it's him at the end i think it's Um, one of those movies where once you've seen it through a few times it's almost hard to remember when you found out a certain part of the plot because then you're going into it knowing it but i kind of don't mind that at all it's such a beautifully made movie it is so beautifully constructed the non-linear structure is so well done it always bothers me it, it feels similar to me like a time travel movie in the sense that when you do movies or like back to the future 2 kind of thing where you revisit things it always bothers me if they don't get it right there's a sequence where dylan baker as our serial killer principal is burying a body in the backyard and Brian Cox's Krieg is yelling at him from his house on the other side of the fence. And we see that same sequence of events twice. And I'm not sure, it probably doesn't time out exactly right. There's always compression of time where they have to do things again. But those two sync up very well in a way that I find satisfying that in other movies they would screw it up. Like they wouldn't use the same sound mm-hmm. for dialogue. They wouldn't quite get the timing right. That all sounds and feels right both times, like it syncs up. And that's what makes this so rewarding, because if you're going to do a movie like this, where you're going to make the audience feel like they're in that night, it has to work that way. 
They also use, back speaking of House on Haunted Hill, they play House on Haunted Hill as if it's playing on TV the night of Halloween. And that's also used in both those storylines to tell you where you are in the night because it's on TV in Krieg's house. And then when his neighbor walks in to his house, he's hearing the screaming from part of the movie. So it syncs up in that they're both having it on in the background on TV. Another one of our syncing moments, as you pointed out, is the little girl who's dressed in the witch outfit who goes for the zombie story. She hears the werewolves howling at one point. So we know where that syncs up with the werewolf party happening in the Mm -hmm. other part. I'm sure somebody's worked out a chart for all this. I'm sure there's like a, a timeline of actual events. Yeah. I do think that's the high point of the whole movie in some respects is the werewolf story. It's yeah. And even though it's a nice, it has, it has Dylan Baker's serial killer thing with him and his son, which has a great payoff too. So there's that there's Krieg and the Halloween school bus massacre sequence with the kids. And then there's Sam. But in many ways it feels like the werewolf part is the showpiece of the film. It has the most elaborate makeup. Werewolves are really done nicely. Uh, the whole concept of them transforming by removing their skin is both like almost disgusting in a way, but done in a way that's not strangely enough that I could say this. It doesn't seem that gory. It seems kind of almost silly and comical. Well, it's because they sort of set it up as if it's like a strip tease. Yeah. Where it's like they're having this party in the woods and they're all dancing and drinking and freeing themselves. And you think, oh, is it sort of a witchy coveny type situation? And, you know, they're ripping their hairs down and taking dresses off. And you're like, oh, it's like going to get real coveny up in here. And then somebody takes a nail and slides it down someone's back so that they can like peel all of their skin off. And they're sort of pulling arms and leg skin off like gloves. Yeah. And I just think it's just an extraordinary way to do it. I think it's very inventive. It's very original. And I don't care what anybody says. It is the finest use of Marilyn Manson's Sweet Dreams cover that's ever been done in a film. I'll defend that. It also lets you sort of have a whole host of characters you'd seen throughout the movie show up as their victims, including like the news crew they met in town, the guy who was the clerk at the costume shop, your favorite. The hot dog. The hot dog, where <laughs> he's still in the full hot dog suit and they're just rolling him like, oh, towards the fire. Poor hot dog guy. Um, but it's just this whole storyline that's set up to feel like if nothing else, they're just having like sexy Halloween fun times. And because it's a movie like this, you're thinking, well, maybe it's a witchy thing or it's like a, a coveny thing. And they keep alluding to um, Anna Paquin's character about it being like her first time, except that it's supposedly her first time like slaughtering a man as a werewolf. Which I'm almost is not, amazing. I'm almost not entirely sure if they mean is this is her first kill, I guess, is the likeliest thing they mean Probably. rather than just her like also her first transforming I, mean, I guess she's probably been a werewolf i mean changed before yeah but this is her first kill this is like a year before she started true blood too so this is like i, I was saying when we were watching it 
she's got to be the most high profile, biggest name in this. So maybe Brian Cox. Well, I mean, the thing is, he's such a known character actor, but he's not someone that's like a lead in anything. Mm -hmm. And I mean, as Sookie in True Blood, it's like she's horror royalty from the 2000s. Yeah, but that's after this. Right after. Yeah. Yeah. But it's just. She's... Not that she didn't have a prolific career as a child actor. Yeah. So, I mean, clearly she's known. Yeah, and and just great with the Red Riding Hood thing. There's great um, thematic stuff in that sequence. But the whole movie is just a gem that really rewards you seeing it over and over again. And is one of those things we talk about, whether it's a house or a place, it's a wonderful movie to experience a night of Halloween in. It also feels very vindicating to watch a group of children try to bully who they think is like the weird kid or the strange kid and to ultimately have the weird kid just emerge unscathed and to have the rest of them truly get instant karma for what they've just done. This movie's brave enough to go that route. They don't show it, but you can hear it. And you and I have gone back and forth about whether Rhonda, who's the character dressed like a witch, who, you know, they say is an idiot savant and has a whole yard full of jack-o'-lanterns, which is amazing. Uh, We've gone back and forth about whether she's just sort of attuned to what's going on because she is actually a bit of a savant or is she someone who works sort of for the same company that sam does if i remember correctly she and krieg are the only two that actually look at are seen by sam but like actually have eye contact with sam in the Mm. night krieg does after he's experienced meeting him and was given his very brief window of potential redemption before others show up to say you know what never mind but but he's watching him and what and he's watching him watching him back but she also shares a look with sam shows no surprise seems kind of resigned to it and they just walk off in different directions almost like well we're taking care of business in our mutual corners of halloween Mm -hmm. so i don't know I also think that you could look at this entire movie as the origin story for Velma because <laughs> just, you know, she loses her glasses. She has the same kind of voice. And one day maybe she meets her other friends and decides, well, we'll just hang out in this van and go find other creatures. And if they were going to do a sequel to this, my number one vote would be as difficult as it would be now, probably now impossible because of all the the aging of a lot of the younger stars. The only way I could see a sequel to this working would have been do a sequel right after, tell a few more stories, but tell it in the same exact night and weave them in. Again, Back to the Future 2 style. Go back into the first movie and weave them into that night. There's plenty of room. But I would also argue... 13 years. Well, you can't do that. Yeah, you can't. And and I also don't know that making a sequel to this is necessary at all. It's a great standalone film, and it's wonderful to revisit, and there's no need to make it again. I would agree. I think it's worth a watch and a rewatch and a re-rewatch, and it's just something that's enjoyable to have on and have on in the background even. So I think it's just great storytelling, and there's no need to make another one. Well, that's our pumpkin film for this Halloween triple feature. So moving on to our witch film, there were quite a few choices, but we settled on The Craft from 1996. Girls, watch out for those weirdos. 
We are the weirdos, mister. And there is also, in fact, a one of the standard soft reboot remake requels, as Mike Nelson on Mystery Science Theater would probably say, requel, mm-hmm. uh, The Craft Legacy that's coming out just a few days from when we uh, are recording this, which means that probably by the time we post this, you'll be able to see that on demand. When we saw the trailer for that remake, we discovered that it was, in fact, sort of doing the soft reboot thing because they feature a moment where a character sees a photograph of Feruza Balk's character from the original. Right. So they're clearly trying to connect. And I wondered how late in the game that actually came up as a way to placate fans because there was a lot of negative backlash to doing a remake. And part of it is because, as you've told me, this is one that's more your context than mine. It definitely was a film that didn't do well when it came out but instantly grabbed an audience and has become a modern cult classic. Which, by the way, when you said that to me, blew my mind because in 1996, like, this was my everything. And, like, everyone I knew was absolutely obsessed. Like, I mean, basically it was a Nev Campbell year for me with my obsessions because Scream and The Craft, I mean, to me, it's like this is the most magnificent year for horror releases of my teenage years. It's also fascinating as we looked it up. It's her and Skeet Ulrich turns up in this. Yep. And both of them, of course, turn up and scream. And as we looked it up, it's an interesting little timeline because this came out in, I think it was May of 1996. Um, I'm just double checking that as I'm talking about it because I have it up. Yeah. May of 96. Scream came out in December of 96. So one after the other. But they were shot almost a year apart. The Craft had been shot in 95, in the summer of 95, so almost a full year before its release. And Scream was shot only a few months before its release. Which makes sense. We recently watched, I guess, sort of an interview, sort of a conversation that Nev Campbell and Jamie Lee Curtis had done. Oh, that was wonderful. It's a great one. Uh, I can't remember which magazine it was that organized it. It was was Variety or or something. Yeah, some you can Google it, I'm sure, and find Maybe it. It was variety. But what was interesting is the two of them talking about how neither of them are really necessarily fans of watching horror movies. And in asking her why she took the role in Scream, Nev Campbell said it's the first time anybody offered me a starring role in anything. So clearly to me, that was signifying it was filmed after the craft because she's not the main character. She's sort of in the main ensemble. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, everyone I knew, because basically I said any reviewer who gave it a bad review obviously wasn't a teenage girl in 1996 because it was such a revelation. Never mind the witchcraft. It was such a revelation to see a movie that was primarily about a group of women and their lives and what they were doing. And, you know, there were stories involving men kind of woven into it. But really, it wasn't about that. It wasn't about a group of girls trying to get homecoming dates. And it also wasn't about a group of girls all getting like torn apart in a cabin in the deep woods by hillbillies. Like it was something that sort of bridged both those categories of being like a teen sort of hangout movie and being a horror film. And I was just in love with it i mean basically it guided my style for for many many years um there's a lot of photos of me i'm sure from like 
97, 98 was Doing the like... Clueless, uh, Clueless. I oh, clu- I did I did Clueless before I that. So I, I, had, uh, I had knee socks and like the matching plaid outfits and such. I have Clueless on my mind because I was holding on to the thought that Brecken Meyer turns up in this. So. <laughs> but I was going to say, so you had the... Um... Like a lot of like heavy jewelry and rings and like dangly things. I wore gold lipstick for a while. It was not a good look for me. <laughs> and I, I hope to never make such fashion mistakes again. But... It was sort of driven by the craft, which is just such an amazing story. And I don't want to knock the sort of soft reboot without seeing it. No. I, I mean, also it might turn out good. don't really understand fully the need to remake movies like that. And we've talked about it before. It's that in watching it again, this movie still holds up. Like you could watch it now and if you were a teenager now, probably the only thing you wouldn't quite understand is like all the people talking on their house phones instead of cell phones. But yeah. other than that, I mean, even the music, the the soundtrack of this is one of those soundtracks that everybody had to own. It's one of my favorite movie soundtracks of all time. I bought it at the time because it had a phenomenal cover of a Peter Gabriel song. Mm-hmm. I have the touch. The Heather Nova. Heather Nova. It had a Jewel song on it. And I was listening to anything Jewel did at the time. A so. really like haunting, creepy Portishead track while so, she's like running through the woods. It's, it's one of those great. movies that the soundtrack alone took on its own life. Mm-hmm. And um, and everybody was paying attention to that. But yeah, it's also, I I feel like any criticism I might have about it, this is getting into one of those areas we talked about before with other things where I feel like any criticism I might have about it is probably only because it's not quite for me. Mm. So there's no reason to really... I think it holds up well. I do feel that there were times where I almost felt like I wanted more. Like I wanted more background for some of... like How did they become... Because when we meet the three... Where Faruza Balk is very much sort of the alpha in this group. Yeah, she's Nancy. Um, and we meet, and, and uh, Rachel True is Rochelle, and it's my mother's name. And um, and Nev Campbell is Bonnie. And they meet Sarah, who's basically our lead. Robin Tunney is the new girl. But we don't really get a lot of, about them from the past. They kind of show up as a three that's already been. It, I feel like, oh, it would have been nice to know a little bit more. By the way, the page says that the burn scars that Bonnie has, Nev Campbell's character, from an auto accident, and I actually don't even remember them saying that. They never mention it. So I, I'm not sure where they would be getting that from, unless it's just interviews, maybe, that were done later where the writer, director said that. Hmm. But I would agree with you on that count. I think that especially... Rochelle, Rachel True's character, doesn't get enough background at all. You get background as to what her central conflict point is, because all of them have sort of a desire that they want to achieve, you know, using the power of magic and the sort of power of the sisterhood that they have. And you get a clear image of what she wants to achieve, which is she just wants to be able to exist in the same space as the rest of them and not be judged for who she is because she's in this school that is clearly very white and is 
I don't even know if she's the only black student we see. Maybe there are more in crowd shots. I genuinely can't remember. If so, yeah. it is few and far between. And But boy, do they hit the racism right, right, you know. I mean, they just come out and say it. It's not inferred. You yeah. have Christine Taylor playing another person who's on the dive team with her, who's constantly needling her. And she asks her why. And she just straight up says, because, like, I'm a racist. Yeah. And it's just, I mean, you get that picture of the backstory of her personal conflict, but you don't really get any information about who she is, what her family is like. She's the only character who you don't see her parents in the film because for Zabalk, you see her mom and I guess her stepfather um, when they're living together in their trailer in Nev Campbell's case for Bonnie, you don't ever see her father, but her mother goes with her when she's getting medical treatments for all her burn scars. And she's there when they're having a slumber party. They're kind of passing through, but you see Sarah's father and stepmother as well. Is it valid to kind of say that in a way the movie itself is racist to take its black lead character and use her only to comment on racism? A little bit, yeah. I mean, it's like she only is there to be the character that another character says, I don't like you because you're black. It's one of the things I mentioned when you get the sort of exposition conversation where Sarah's the new kid, she's eating lunch, and Skeet Ulrich is trying to sort of flirt with her and she's being cold. She's like, sorry, bad day. You know, this group of girls was really mean to me when she points him out and he's like, oh, they're witches. And they're like, he's like, she's a slut. She's covered in burn scars. And yes, it's like and she says nothing about Rochelle. And so like the inferences and she's the other one. It's also kind of interesting. Well, not interesting. It's sad. It's sad, really, that Rachel True herself has anybody in the horror fan community probably knows has suffered quite a bit on the convention circuit as being like the one they always forget to bother asking whenever they have craft reunions or or like the others appearing at conventions i think a few years ago there was finally like a kind of thing going around the fan community of everybody yelling at the conventions and saying invite rachel true she's one of the leads i think it was just last year especially with all the talk of the reboot and everything coming out and it's not just the conventions she's come out and sort of said She was routinely not invited to press junkets for the film when it was coming out. And she's like, this is a film about four friends. Why are you only inviting three of them to go and do your press events? You know, she's been very outspoken about that. And she is definitely not sort of had as robust an acting career as the rest of them. I mean, it's not like she hasn't worked. She's had some roles, but... It certainly wasn't a launching pad in the same way as it was for some of the other actors in the film. Moving on to one of the others, though, I would have to say that no matter what else, it's a tour de force for Feruza Balk. Yes. This is almost something that I feel should have been like an Oscar nomination. It's an extraordinary performance she puts in. It also is aided by what I think is one of the truly great examples of hair and costuming and everything else slowly changing a character so that as she's getting crazier and crazier her look is getting crazier and Mm -hmm. crazier but you rarely see an actor commit to such absolute insanity as she does 
She is literally like just a whirling dervish of a person. She's doing the movie like she's auditioning to play the Joker. <laughs> yeah, that's right, actually. She'd be a great Joker. She'd be a great Joker. I think even early on in the movie when she still looks relatively the closest she gets to normal is the one where, what is the line the bus driver says to watch out for the... Oh, yeah, to be careful. There's weirdos out there. Weirdos. And so we're the weirdos. And there's the one beat she waits before smiling as the doors close. And it looks like she could eat his heart out. I love, by the way, that you're like, what is that line again? And for like every girl who was a teen in 1996, <laughs> we are the weirdos, mister, is like a catchphrase that has guided our lives. <laughs> I am weird. Are you weird? Yes, I am. Yes, I am weird. You are weird. Yes. You're weird. Thank God. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I noticed, too, in this watching, and I, I'm sure I've noticed it before. It's just been a while since I've seen it. But Nancy, Faruza Balk's character, she is the first face you see, and she is the last face you see. Like, she bookends this movie. And it's always sort of presented as being Sarah's story, but really it's more Nancy's story in many ways than Sarah's story, or maybe equally the two of them. And they're the ones who are having sort of their final battle at the end of this, yeah. like the good witch versus the bad witch. And it's sort of all that, the thematic elements of balance and nature and sort of that there is no such thing as a good witch or bad witch. There's just, you know, sort of gray area that it's sort of like comes from nature and that each person is both. And it's a matter of your intentions, not necessarily being good is what creates the negativity. And by the way, a lot of that thematic stuff, that exposition, the Lumacy style exposition that we get in this comes to us courtesy of the owner of the bookstore, which is one of the greatest looking bookstores in any movie ever. Built on a place of power with a temple in the back of it. And uh, was it Lirio is her name, I guess. So, she is played by, the one who owns the store is played by a Spanish actress, Asumpta Serna. And I just quickly looked up. She's written whole books on acting. She's got, she's an educator as well. She has like a small but key part that also, I feel bad because I also feel like her character never quite gets any finality because the last we see her is when uh, Robin Tunney, Sarah runs away. Mm -hmm. We never see her again. It would have been nice to have a button on that and have her go back to the bookstore she is sort of a surrogate mother figure for Sarah. Yeah. Um, and obviously very intuitive and has, uh, I think, one of my favorite witchy moments of the film where they're in the temple sort of towards the end before they're going to have this big showdown. And she lights one candle and all the candles light. And it finally answers the age-old question that we always have whenever somebody walks into a candlelit room of who lit all of these. And the answer is, if you could just light one and it lights them all, it answers that question. Presumably you can turn them all out the same way. That's so right. there you go. It's easy. Yeah. Although nobody ever seems to turn them out. They just, they just leave the room on fire. Yeah. Um, like in Prince of Darkness, where you'd think, wouldn't you want no more <laughs> like sources of flame? But all right. There are some elements as well. I mean, literal elements, like nature elements that are a little on the nose. Um, they each essentially represent north, south, east, west, and also earth, air, fire, water. And so 
you have Rochelle representing water and she's a diver. She's a swimmer. Oh, you have yeah. Bonnie representing fire and she's covered in burn scars. You have Sarah representing earth because she's like the earth mother and, you know, her mother supposedly was a witch, except that she died giving birth to her and she didn't know any of that. And then you have Nancy, who's basically just like a hurricane of crazy, and she's representing air. I would also add that I think one of the underlying thematic things might be that she wants to fly away. Mm. Because we do end on her screaming in the mental institution that she can fly. Except that she's bound now, figuratively, magically, and literally she's bound. But she's saying she can fly. And I was spending the whole movie trying to figure out why air. And it occurred to me, her home situation is horrific. Standard abusive, you know, stepfather, who also looks like, if not directly, at least potentially sexually abusive. Mm -hmm. Um, Certainly physically. And although she kind of sort of can deal with her mother, we also get the moment where she mimes a shotgun behind her. She can't stand her either. I think the air thing is she wants to fly away anywhere. And that's why her only thing is she wants power. She wants power to keep people away from her. She wants power to fly away. And um, so in a sense, if it is her story, it's a real tragic ending because she's trapped. I think really the beauty of this is that you can be sympathetic to the wants of every single one of the characters, including Nancy, And there are moments before she sort of becomes completely consumed by power where you can see that even Nancy is sympathetic to the sort of hurts of her sisters where they're sitting around having a slumber party and Nev Campbell, you know, is Bonnie. She's wishing away her scars and Nancy's sort of running her hands over her back. And at one point, she just sort of like stops and sort of looks away and looks pained on her behalf. And you can see that at least at some point in all of this, she truly cared about what happened to the rest of them, including Sarah. You know, it also occurs to me, too, that Nancy, for the most part, as a character, seems to be the one that's the most above it all. Like she's going to be something bigger, wants to be something bigger, more powerful. And yet one of the things she does is having already apparently had a short term, seems mostly sexual relationship with Skeet Ulrich's character, Chris, um, Chris, she goes to try to seduce him again using the image of Sarah. She just wants him to accept her and have sex with her. And I don't think it's it's just she just wants to be accepted she goes nuts when he throws her off and it's like despite all the thing indications you get you're saying about sympathetic i wonder to what extent you could argue that the whole point of the nancy character is i kept always referring to her as like it's the origin of a supervillain, but really is she not just a damaged person who everyone around her has treated her terribly for so long that now this is what she is and i think she's so used to being treated terribly that when people around her show even the hint of displeasure at what she's doing, she treats them instantly as an enemy. Where Sarah's kind of telling her, look, I think maybe you should just calm down and think about what you're doing because I think you're taking this too far. And she was like, okay, I guess I'll have to kill you. And it's like, it's such a leap 
to go from that. It's like the moment you express sort of disapproval or displeasure. I also don't understand what the appeal is with Skeet Ulrich's character there. Like he's an absolute jerk. He goes on one date with Sarah and at the end of the date, he's like sex. And she's like, maybe not tonight. And he's like, that's cool. And then the next day he's like, yeah, I slept with her and it was terrible and like spreads rumors. And yet still what Sarah's desire is, is for him to like her. And I don't quite understand that. And I do think that that really doesn't send the best message and it's not a really good reinforcing thing and ultimately she also has this sort of very tropey experience with love spell where he becomes so obsessed with her that he tries to rape her that's pretty by the numbers and it's it's disturbing when it gets to that point but it's also very much like it's every love spell story you know where this is going when Mm -hmm. the obsession becomes too much and his fate is also pretty predictable too but i have my own theory about the reboot and their inclusion of like the one polaroid of feruza balk yeah if you are interested in i i like to try to predict where movies are going when i see a trailer and in many cases i can figure it out the original version of the movie seems to really center around Sarah as sort of your point of view character, even though it, it is kind of Nancy's story, Sarah is your point of view character. And clearly in this reboot, it's more the Nancy type character who is your point of view character. Like the new girl coming in is not a Sarah, she's a Nancy. You think we're going to find out they're related? I think we're going to find out that in Nancy's very brief encounter at the party, before she uh, wills Skeet Ulrich out a window that she actually got pregnant and had a baby while in a mental institution that the baby was then adopted and that she's actually her daughter because it also brings through that thread that they have in the original movie where um, Sarah's mother died giving birth to her and so she never knew that she was a witch until maybe she's nancy told later giving birth. maybe nancy dies giving birth or maybe she doesn't i don't know but maybe because she doesn't know her mother she has no way of knowing that she was a witch very interesting um and even though she herself was bound and couldn't do anything it doesn't mean that her child couldn't necessarily and i'm gonna also, be really disappointed if they don't do that i mean i would too honestly I also feel like there's a great opportunity for having the same type of bookstore or like a cult store scenario run by Robin Tunney. And I doubt they did it because we haven't really heard anything about her having been on set or done anything with it. And if they didn't, I think it's a real missed opportunity because at the end of the film, she's the only one who retains any kind of powers because she's the one who essentially used them for good and like brought all that power into herself for good and she's an extraordinarily strong witch and to have her be the one imparting wisdom would make so much sense i'm also pretty certain that the brief glimpse of the book we see in the new remake trailer is the same cover it is it's the exact same cover they put the the name of the movie 
on a book called The Craft yeah. that they then read, which I think is very clever. Here's hoping if Tani makes a surprise cameo, they at least had her grow out her own hair for this one. That's one. I didn't even think about it or realize it until you told me. I thought her hair was just super crunchy because it was the 90s and everybody used a lot of hairspray, myself included. It's just such a damn distracting, like, perfect line hair. Because we found out she she was still basically bald from having just wrapped Empire Records. So the whole thing is a wig. But it just... Ugh. The HD makes everything look great except the wig. Yeah. Uh, I've never been so aware of her hairline as I was watching it this time. Yeah. I, I love your idea, but unfortunately, in keeping with your uh, running thing of being able to make every movie ending better, it strikes me that if this is your theory for the remake, it's probably not what they did. And uh, I mean, I'm certain, I, I'm fairly certain we're not going to get a cameo by any i'd be surprised if we did uh, yeah i think so too because the way the rumor mill works we would have heard something we would have known by now about somebody having been on set i will watch it because i mean the craft was just such a huge part of my world as a teenager and i would certainly like to see what they do with it with the new generation i'm a little distressed that half the trailer seems to just involve like glitter makeup and like glitter baths and stuff and i don't and pressed flowers it seems like there's a lot of scrapbooking in this trailer so i'm not sure i feel about them using their magic to make like glitter eyeshadow um but (laughs) i i will also concede that in a certain sense even though the original film was made for me maybe this reboot isn't made for me and that's also okay they they can both exist and both be intended for a different audience and if it gives the same feeling to a teenage girl now that i had watching the original and watching a film that really does center around a group of girls who do talk about more than just school and their relationships, then ultimately I I can't really find fault in that as a concept. Two down, one to go in our Halloween triple feature and having covered our pumpkin and witch films, we turn at last to a skull, or actually in this case, an entire skeleton. Wait a second. Surely you don't believe those old legends about the lost skeleton of Cadavra. (laughs) (coughs) And it's the lost skeleton of Cadavra. A movie that I firmly accept, uh, despite it always having a place in my heart, as being a movie that often can be, you either love it or you don't. It's a very particular kind of tone. So basically, step back here. The movie is largely the uh, creation of uh, Larry Blamar, who I still follow to this day on social media because I just think he's so damn funny all the time. But he also has an extraordinary knowledge of and appreciation for a lot of old cinema and television in particular. But Lost Skeleton of Cadaver came out in 2001. And the basic idea of the film, it's, it's hard to explain because it's got a very unique sense of humor. It's meant to be a pastiche of and sort of a loving homage to 50 schlock sci-fi, specifically movies like the kind that Ed Wood made. The kind of movie where all the dialogue that's written has clearly not been edited and is not being written by someone who knows how a sentence goes together well. 
Uh, the effects are terrible. Everything's being shot in Bronson Canyon, L.A., because that's all they can do, which is what this did. And it's your standard scientist and his wife. They're looking for a meteor that's made of atmospherium. That's the rare element they're trying to find. And wouldn't you know it, at the same time, two aliens have landed on Earth who are also looking for atmospherium. And also at the same time, this crazed, deranged scientist is looking for the lost skeleton of cadaver for reasons that are never quite made clear. But atmospherium will reawaken the skeleton. And everybody comes together, including a woman made from four different forest creatures and assorted others. You either get into the humor immediately and understand it. I would say it's kind of sort of like Airplane in the sense that everybody in the movie plays it seriously with no real nod to the fact that everything they're doing and saying is insane. But it's also not quite airplane because it's not really relying on a lot of visual gags. It's largely dialogue-driven and character-driven. And it's meant to be, we're making an Ed Wood movie deliberately. And that doesn't work for a lot of people. But when I saw it, it became a movie that for a while there, and it's been years since I've seen it, I would watch over and over again to the point where every line of dialogue I knew by heart. And it's intentionally incredibly cheesy. And there's there's just such a level of affection to it all. And you had never seen it. I hadn't. And I think maybe the best way to describe it in those terms would be, what if Airplane were a stage play instead of a film where you had to kind of rely on like the interplay of the characters and the dialogue. And it's mostly just set in one place sort of in and around this house I think that there are ways in which sometimes trying to intentionally make something to a certain taste level I guess like can go horribly awry and I'm thinking like eight million different sci-fi original like mutant hybrid animal alien (laughs) movie things and asylum is what you're talking about well there's some asylum stuff that i actually do enjoy but for the most part there's a lot of stuff that's being made to be cheesy and it just is almost trying too hard to Mm -hmm. be cheesy and then just comes off being dumb so i think this is just very intelligently dumb if that makes sense because It's sort of showing like just how ridiculous all of these movies were, but also clearly so much thought was put into the writing and the intertwining of the storylines in a way that wouldn't have been done if Ed Wood had written it. There's a great example, for instance, that one of Blamar's tactics in his writing is that People will say things where the same word or variation of the word comes up like 50 times in a sentence, like someone who can't even think enough to think of a different version of a word to get a sentence out. And there's one famous one in Plan 9 where this one character says the word there like three times in a row. The saucers are up there and the cemeteries out there, but I'll be locked up in there. And then there are multiple occasions in this movie where you get a repeat of a word three, four, five times. And it's clearly meant directly as an homage to that kind of writing, that kind of ineptitude where you're just repeating words because you can't think of anything else. But there's a rhythm that comes about because of that. 
that makes the movie in a strange way, I'd say, like so many of the things we watch, comforting. There's a comfort food to Lost Skeleton. It was nice to see it again. For me, it has been many, many years for multitude of reasons that I hadn't sat down and watched it. There's a rhythm to this movie that's very comforting. Well, it's kind of like watching an episode of Mystery Science Theater where the riffing is part of the dialogue. That's a beautiful way to put it. Yes, exactly. You know, and there's a lot of times where you'll watch an old sci-fi movie on Mystery Science Theater and the riffing that they're doing is really not mean to the movie. It's just pointing out its flaws. And they do that sort of built in to the dialogue itself. And there are times where essentially they take a scene like a step farther than the original would have taken it. And you'll be like, oh, I see. And then they just keep going like even farther. And the whole idea is to take you like just to the edge of being like uncomfortable with a scene I do feel before like, moving it on. I do feel like some of the humor in this also, which again, I can understand why I can rub some people the wrong way. You're either into it or not, is that some of the humor derives, and I have a fine line of what I like and don't like in this. In mm-hmm. this case, I find it works for me, but there's a lot of humor in this that often derives from how uncomfortable can we make you before you can't take it anymore. And that's, I think, we and and for me, humor that where it comes from people being uncomfortable, I sometimes dislike. But there's a lot of long takes in this where there's like, it's hanging too long, way too long. And it's also based on the idea that the editing in a lot of those movies was bad. Like a scene would go too long before it cuts to the next scene. But they're doing that deliberately. And in this case, I feel like it always works for me. I I like it. I get it. And it's also, in its own way, a sort of homage to the fact that they had to get these movies to be a certain length in order to be able to show them, like at the drive-in, to do a double feature. Like, you can't have a movie that's 40 minutes long. You have to get it over an hour, at least. Yeah, you know, that's true. And I guess, like, we see a Mystery Science Theater, they'll... They'll needle Coleman Francis or, uh, you know, I can't remember, Bill Rabane did Monster Go-Go. Yeah. And all these movies saying like, oh, we'll just, you know, and Lippert, you know. We'll say, oh, they keep well. everything. Yeah. It's like, well, I guess we're just going to watch them walk. It's like, yeah, because they probably had a contract to deliver an hour 30 and needed to do that. Yeah. And so it's sort of extending the dialogue in the scenes is one of the ways you get there. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think it's um, Killer Shrews where there's like a long scene of them arriving to the island. Like they pull up in the boat and then you watch them like dock the boat, get out of the boat, walk along the whole dock, walk along the whole shoreline. It's it's... long enough for Tom to do the whole bit about how this is a scene like the cookbook scene from Goodfellas. (laughs) And it's like, yeah, they need every precious minute of footage that they filmed because you got to hit that mark. And so I think a lot of it really speaks to that especially there's a scene once they awaken the skeleton where they're climbing back down off the mountain and like clearly trying to do this in a way they would have done at the time you see the strings like and the skeleton like traversing down the mountain and then walking behind him and then with him slightly next to him slightly yeah i love in front how of him. none of it matches there's one scene where they're clearly just holding it up and mm-hmm. then one scene where he's ahead of them and like doing sort of like a jaunty skeleton walk where he's just like, <laughs> yep, yep, walking, walking down this mountain. And they show you 
everything, even right to the end where they have to like go down and collect something and like the end is coming up and they're still just showing like four people slowly walking down a path. One of the other touches I think is great is that first of all, that the scientist is even bringing his wife along with him on this, that they each have one set of clothing that they're wearing the (laughs) whole time, because obviously if you were filming this in the 50s, they would have just filmed it over a couple of days. They got the one outfit. It's what you're wearing. This was written in five days and took 10 days, just over 10 days to film. So they got to do it the same way. They didn't bring any luggage with them. Yet somehow she keeps making like pot roasts (laughs) in the kitchen. The food is endless. That he's like doing his scientific experiments with like a My First Science kit. Like in the bedroom, which on a we think table. is the same one that uh, Yeber is using. <laughs> yeah, also. both both Fleming. scientists have the same like my first science kit. One of them in the cave with the skeleton. One of them in the house with the meteor. And there's a lot of really like quick quips too. Like amongst all the strung out ones, I think probably my absolute favorite is the two aliens trying to blend in by dressing like humans and they go to sit on the couch and he's just like fold in the middle <laughs> and then they both just like fold and sit in like the world's most awkward way mm-hmm. and it's like a quick hit joke because he's saying the thing they're about to do like our ways are different from yours and like they have so many versions of the our ways are different from yours mm-hmm. joke but that is like the most succinct yeah and like punchy which I love. Also, the referring to the dress as like a reverse funnel. Yeah, soft cloth funnel. Soft cloth <laughs> funnel. Yeah. It's like there's a lot of little touches that are just really sharp writing. And you had, you had the line that you absolutely loved from the ranger. Yeah, there's the bit where Ranger Brad comes in to tell them about the horrible mutilating that's going on and that, you know, he likes whenever horrible mutilations happen, he likes to tell people because hopefully <laughs> they won't get horribly mutilated too. Mm-hmm. And and there's the bit in Monster Go-Go, which is one of the mystery science theaters we watch more than almost any other. It's probably my top three along with Giant Gila Monster, where they talk about horrible mutilations. like Off camera. The narration. He was horribly mutilated in, in a way, way no one had seen before. And we certainly can't show you, so. <laughs> All right. Oh, yeah, and that's it. My all-time favorite line, which I'll probably just drop in, is the bear line. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tell me, Ranger, any idea what might have caused this horrible mutilation, as you call it? Oh, probably nothing to worry about. Could be a bear, I suppose. Can a bear do that? I mean, horribly mutilate? Dr. Armstrong, in my time, I guess I've seen bears do some things that even a bear wouldn't do. I also love, like, you, the fold in the middle is great, but I I also love the bit right in that same scene, I think, where he says, you know, my wife sometimes forgets she's not a space alien. (laughs) I mean, it's, it's beautifully done. I mean, that's the thing. There's so much about the writing in this movie that's meant to be inept it's trying to be awkward and poorly written but the beauty of it to me anyway is that so much of when it has to hit with a joke so much of it i think is written so beautifully and economically and it gets a line that's just so quotable and it's one of these movies i think that like you know when you meet someone who gets this they Mm -hmm. know all the lines especially the skeletons lines when it starts talking because the skeleton is just like He's a jerk. 
And he's just <laughs> like, he's going to tell you what's on his mind, because whatever, man. His plan is not very clear either, but then neither is Fleming's plan. Why, not really. Why bringing the lost skeleton back will get anybody anything is not really that clear. He looks pretty easy to defeat, but he's very polite to people that are not directly against him or involved in his plans. Yeah. Which leads to things like, hi, Betty. <laughs> You could you could just go crazy quoting all this stuff. It sticks in your head, and there's a rhythm to it, which also makes sense that then you get a little bit of a nod to Beatnik Coffeehouse 50s teenage movies, too, because you get Anamala, who is straight out of every one of the Mystery Science Theater Beatnik movies, where everybody's dressed all in black and doing the bongo dances, mm-hmm. and she's got her rock dance in this, and, and it's like... It just all feels very much like it's nailing that era. It's, it's it's a loving homage. It's like there's some stuff where it pokes fun and it feels a little like too cruel. I know a lot of people love the scary movie franchise of like spoofs. But for me, it's like it kind of digs too hard at them. There's a whole episode conversation about how you handle parody. Mm-hmm. I mean, like like we we're saying, Airplane was of a time, the Zuckers and Abrams, they nailed this particular kind of combination, visual and dialogue parody of something that was brilliant. And no one had ever done quite that kind of thing before. That idea of no one in the movie is aware that they're trying to be funny. That's the only way it works. Mm-hmm. They're, they're not seeing the thing right behind them, but you are. That's what makes it funny. And I think what Blamar and his group in this nail is that you can totally feel in every second of this movie that they love the movies they're doing their version of. Yes. There's no mean-spiritedness about it at all. Even <laughs> Not just the skeleton, like you pointed out, you could see all the metal, you know. Yeah, the shiny metal, like, <laughs> joints and everything. But the the incredibly silly mutant costume, which, frankly, we've been watching Horror Party Beach quite a bit, too. It's just missing the hot dog mouth. He's not that far off. And he does have very uh, sad and compelling eyes. She's right. To me, it works when it comes from a place of affection. And Mystery Science Theater, like, you know, it can, it can get mean-spirited <laughs> if you're... I mean, Mitchell is a good example. They can hate something enough that they start turning in that direction. But for the most part, it's about they wouldn't sit there and watch these things if they didn't have a certain connection to it. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, like the premise is they're being punished by being shown these movies, except that the people making the show are people who are actively doing this and like choosing to watch them. And so clearly the riffs are coming from a place of love. And this is sort of the same kind of feeling that it's making fun of all of the corners that got cut for the sake of budget for people who didn't have the budget and the other corners that got cut because they were only interested in turning around a product and making some money off of it at the drive-in and weren't necessarily interested in storytelling they were just going through a checklist Mm -hmm. of do you have a scientist do you have a mutant do you have an alien is there a strange element and they just kind of go down the list they get all of them in there they film the movie they put it out you turn a profit on it and you move on to the next one and even though there are some people who made movies in that way that were just doing it for profit it doesn't change the fact that there are still some elements from those films that endure and that inspire people to make 
better science fiction with better storytelling and better writing because they saw the sort of subpar version of it. Sometimes like we talk about too, it's like it's what what they tried to do more than what actually wound up happening. Mm -hmm. You can appreciate the attempt. Uh, and I think this is a celebration of people making attempts at things. <laughs> I mean, they're doing it right, but I mean, they're, you know, paying homage to that. I also want to just throw out that if you're someone that already likes Lost Skeleton, you already know this stuff. But if anybody seeks it out, wants to find other stuff, this is a team that really has kind of stuck together and has done a lot of other things. And they did a sequel to this, Lost Skeleton Returns Again, that was done in color this time. This is, I don't even mention this is black and white. It's done straight like it's one of those old movies. And they kind of tried to move it forward a little bit in time to pay homage to like 60s B-movie. There's a jungle, more of a jungle setting kind of thing. They've done a number of other things. One of the things, though, that I've also really enjoyed and will occasionally keep going back to, and they're all on YouTube, that's meant to be like a parody of not quite Twilight Zone so much as the other anthology series from the same time, One Step Beyond, that focused more on like paranormal and supernatural stuff. It was hosted by this guy, John Newland, who looked like a very clean cut, you know, standard swept back hair guy. And they do like, uh, they would do versions of like the, the kind of stories you get, like the person who picks up the hitchhiker who gives them the coat and then later finds the coat laying on that person's grave because they were a ghost. Like these old campfire kind of stories. Right. They did a series of it with the guy who plays Crowbar, Andrew Parks, playing the <laughs> insanely named Trufan Newbin. Trufan Newbin is the host of Tales from the Pub. And every one of these short little things is a story that happens in a pub. But they're usually insanely pedestrian and meaningless <laughs> but treated as if, like, there's one where, you know, have you ever met someone who looked exactly like you? They say that each of us has an exact double somewhere in the world. Of course, few of us actually get to confront our double. But if we did, there'd be nothing sinister or supernatural about it. Would there? And they cut to the other person, and they couldn't look more unlike that person <laughs> if they tried. They are completely dissimilar in every conceivable way, but they're like, It's incredible. It's like looking in a mirror. So Tales from the Pub is a great little uh, side dish after you've experienced the meal that is the lost skeleton of Cadavra. Meow. <laughs> <laughs> well, we tried to keep things pretty tight on this one because rather than do a deep dive into one specific film, we wanted to cover three movies that uh, fit this beautiful little theme you came up with. And I guess that means that uh, should things continue, and uh, optimism is not one of my best traits right now, then I guess next Halloween we'll have to come up with a different kind of pattern or theme that we'll use to uh, pick our stuff for that. And for sure, if you have ideas, really not just related to a specific holiday, but a movie you would like to hear us cover, a movie series, something that is completely different from what we've been doing, or something that's very similar. I mean, anything that you might want to hear us talk about, we always love to hear it. And you can reach out to us online. And it's also worth noting that really, in the case of this show, Halloween never really ends. Never. Thanks for listening to Ghouls in the House, featuring Natalie B. Latosky and Arnold T. Blumberg. You can find Natalie on Twitter at NBLatosky, that's NBLit of Sky, and Arnold at Doctor of the Dead, that's me. Our movies this episode were Trick or Treat, 2007, The Craft, 1996, 
and The Lost Skeleton of Cadavra, 2001. I wonder. Oh well. Ghouls in the House is an ATB Publishing production. Check out our other podcasts, books on your favorite fictional worlds, and other assorted goodies at www.atbpublishing.com. Join us next week for another step in the walk of the unknown. Until then, I'm your host, Trufin Newbin, saying...